more finer. We'll do the call to worship. You can read with me if you want. Feel no pressure. I can read if you so wish. The Lord is close to all who call upon him. Yes, to all who call on him in truth. I will praise the Lord. And may everyone on earth bless his holy name forever and ever. And uh, maybe I, the instructions, I should probably open with prayer first, Glenn, because it's me up here. So anyways, we're going to ask for prayer now. Dear Lord, we just uh, give thanks that the sun is shining and that's a blessing. And we just uh, give thanks that we have a building to be in when it's cold. We just give thanks that we have a pastor that is able to uh, preach your word to us. And we just give thanks that there's a glorious week ahead. In your name we pray. Amen. Scripture reading is not Brad Rempel. It is Brad Rempel Jr., the wonderful Isaac Rempel, the teenager, the one and only. No pressure. Scripture reading today is from Acts chapter 27. We're going to read the whole chapter. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan court named Julius. And embanking in Admiraton ship, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia. We put out to sea, accompanied by Astrachus of Macedonia of Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. From there we put out to sea and sailed under shelter of Cyprus, because the winds were contrary. When we had sailed through the seas along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy. He put us aboard it. When we had sailed slowly for a many good day for a good many days, and with difficulty had arrived at Nidus, since the wind did not permit us to go further, we sailed under the shelter shelter of Citri off Salmon, and with difficulty sailing past it, we, we came to a place called Fair Heavens, near which was the city of Lycia. When considerable time had passed and voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them and said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. Because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a destination to put out sea from there. If somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Citri, facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. When a moderate south wind came up, Supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Citri, close inshore. But before very very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Iwerkalur. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave away to it and let ourselves be driven along. Running under the shelter of a small island called Claudia, 
We were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in unguarding the ship and fearing that they might run around the shallows of citrus. They let down the sea anchor and in this way let themselves be driven along. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jetson the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing for us, from then on all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. When they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up among their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not have set sail from Citri and incurred this damage and loss. Yet, now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, an angel of God, whom I belong and whom I serve, stood before me, saying, I do not, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run around a certain island. But when the fourteenth night came, as we were being driven about the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. They took surroundings and found it to be twenty fathoms. And a little farther on, they took another surrounding and found it to be fifteen fathoms. Fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. But as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men remain on the ship, you and yourselves cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away with the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. Until the day was about to, to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day, and that you have been consistently watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food, and this is for your own preservation. Not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. Having said this, he took beard, bread, and gave thanks to God in all the presence, in the presence of all. And he broke it and began to eat. All of them were encouraged, and they took themselves also some food. All of us in the ship were 276 persons. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. When day came, they could not recognize the land, but did observe a bay with the beach. They resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could, and casting off anchors, they left them in the sea, and while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail into the wind, they were heading for the beach. But striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, when the stern began to be broken up by the force of waves. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim away and escape. But the centurion wanted, wanting to bring Paul safely, though, kept them from, that kept them from their intention and commanded the, that those who 
could swim should jump overboard and first and get to land. Then the rest should follow some planks and others on various things of the ship. And so it happened that they all were brought safely to land. Thanks, Isaac, for reading that passage for us. Let's just take the time to bow our heads before God and open our hearts to him and what he has for us. Lord God, uh, this passage that was just read for us, I pray you'd help us understand uh, what is going on and more importantly, understand the lessons that come through this passage to each one of us, wherever we are at in our own lives. Lord, this is your word, and it's always relevant, and every part of it, of your word, has something for us, and we know this passage is something for us. So, Lord, give me the wisdom to speak your words as you would want them spoken. Help me, Lord, to do that. Take control of me so that happens, and help me just to, to, to speak it, Lord, as it needs to be spoken, as I said, and help us all, Lord, to hear it and to listen to it and understand what it means for each one of us in our own lives, wherever we're at. So Lord, we ask your guidance in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you do when you are facing an emergency or a crisis? The most immediate thing that would come to our mind is to call 911. That's what you do when you're facing the problem. So this guy called 911 and says, I uh, just witnessed an accident. The guy got hit by a car. I need an ambulance. And the operator responded, what's your location? And the man said, I'm on Eucalyptus Street. And the operator said, uh, could you spell it out for me, please? And there's a long, awkward silence. And the operator finally said, sir, are you, are you still there? And the man replied, I'm going to drag him over to Pine Street, and I'll call you right back. <laughs> and that's all the humor I could come up with for today <laughs> for you and really the kind of crisis we're going to be talking about today is not necessarily the kind you would call 911 about we're talking about the kind of crisis or dire circumstance that comes into our lives that have the potential to shake us deeply and to seemingly entirely change the course of our lives. And more importantly, we'll be talking about handling that kind of a crisis. Eric Liddell was a Scottish sprinter and rugby player and later on a missionary. Uh, you may have heard of him, Eric Liddell. His convictions led him in the 1924 Olympics uh, to refuse to run in his heat of, for the 100 meter race uh, because it was to be held on a Sunday. And that was against his conviction, so he refused to run. And that actually is a subject of the Oscar award-winning movie, Chariots of Fire. Some of you may have, may have seen that movie. At any rate, here's one of the quotes from Eric Liddell. He says, Circumstances may appear to wreck our lives and God's plans. 
But God is not helpless among the ruins. Our broken lives are not lost or useless. God comes in and takes the calamity and uses it victoriously, working out his wonderful plan of love. So that piece of wisdom is something that I'd like you to remember as we go through this. Come today to Acts chapter 27 in our series through the book of Acts. Uh, as was read for us earlier, this chapter records for us the beginning of the Apostle Paul's journey to Rome. So those of you who have been uh, with us for the majority of this series through the book of Acts, uh, you've likely been saying, or like they're saying, well, finally. <laughs> it seems like for the last couple of chapters, Paul is heading for Rome. But things keep coming up. He got arrested by the Jews. They were ready to kill him because they objected to his teaching that Jesus rose from the dead, and that proved that he was the Messiah that all the Jews were waiting for. So for that heresy, they considered, as they considered it, uh, the Jewish authorities felt that Paul should be sentenced to death. So they were going to kill him. He got rescued by the Roman authorities. He was brought to trial. They ended up in delays and more trials in a different place. Sounds like our legal system today, doesn't it? <laughs> delay after delay after delay. That's kind of what Paul went through. Uh, he got pretty much forgotten about and stayed in custody in Caesarea for two years. Uh, and we're wondering if he's ever going to get to Rome. But as we start chapter 27, we see he is finally put on a ship by the Roman authorities to head off to Rome. We're not going to take a huge amount of time going through the story of this chapter. It's pretty straightforward. It's a very interesting chapter, but we'll try to be brief. Uh, first notice that pronoun we in verse 1. That indicates that Luke is with Paul now for this journey. He'll be sailing with Paul to Rome. Luke is the person who wrote this book of Acts. So when he says we, he means that he's there with him. And as you read this lengthy chapter, it becomes obvious that the person who's writing it would have had to have been there to give this kind of account of that, of that voyage. Verse 2 tells us they're also accompanied by a man named Aristarchus. He has been mentioned a couple of times before in the book of Acts as someone who traveled with Paul. Uh, Colossians 4 verse 10, he's described as a fellow prisoner with Paul. So obviously Paul and Aristarchus were, were close. And the rest of this chapter describes the first part of the voyage. And as I said, it's actually a very interesting read. Luke obviously is someone who enjoys describing a sea voyage. Uh, so it's interesting to read the detail that he puts into this. Suffice to say that the ship they were on, they were put on, sailed north from Caesarea. Can you put that map up, Curtis? There we go. Going way out of my usual practice here. Ah, look at this. <laughs> what was that? Caesarea, right there. <laughs> Don't get no respect, do I? <laughs> Caesarea, right there. 
Yeah, boy. <laughs> Maybe I'll just quit. <laughs> Where was I in my notes here? Here, I thought that would be so helpful for all of you if I could, you could see the map of what's going on there. The ship they were on sailed north from Caesarea, as you see there, along the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea. And they stopped at Sidon for a bit, where Paul was able to visit his friends and have his needs taken care of. Not sure what exactly that all meant. But then they headed off again, and they went north until they got past that island of Cyprus, where they turned west, and they sailed between Cyprus and the mainland of the Roman province there of Cilicia. And they did that because the winds were contrary, it says. And there was more shelter as they went on that side of the island. They were traveling in late autumn when the winds made things difficult for ships trying to sail in a westerly direction across the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, at that time of year, there was always a risk of that, this dreaded northeaster storm coming, which made travel virtually impossible. In fact, one source I read said that shipping was dangerous in this area from mid-September till mid-November, and it was shut down completely after mid-November toward the rest of the winter. They ships just didn't even try to sail because of the stormy weather, and the weather was so contrary they couldn't do it. This first part of Paul's voyage was late September through October, because we know that from later on it says the fast was already over, so that would have put it in into October. So the ship did make it to Myra eventually on the coast of the Roman province of Lycia. You can see it there. I will not try to point it out. There a Roman commander found an Alexandrian ship. Now in Alexandria, Alexandria was on the coast of Egypt right at the bottom there. You can see Alexandria. And uh, there was quite a grain trade that went on between Alexandria. They supplied grain to ship it up to Italy, to Rome. Uh, that was quite a, quite a trade there. So there was this Alexandrian ship in that port there at Myra uh, that was sailing to Italy, and so the Roman commander put Paul and his companions on it. And as you read the passage there, from there on it was very difficult sailing because the winds were contrary. Again, as you look at verses 7 and following. Uh, they made it to Nidus, not sure how to say that word, uh, and then because of the wind, they sailed south to get on the south side of the island of Crete. That's that island more in the middle there, uh, to get in the lee of that island. A little more shelter from the wind. And they got to the city of Lassia, harbor called Fair Havens or something like that. And close to the city of Lassia, and they stopped there. And Paul had managed the crew and the Roman authorities, that they had better stop there for the winter. I take it. That's what Paul was meaning as you read verse 10. Uh, Paul says, we're in for a disaster if we're going to try to push on. Uh, the pilot of the ship, though, didn't want to stop there because that harbor wasn't really good for wintering. Uh, it was open to too much wind. So he wanted to go to a better port further west on the island of Crete to winter there by Phoenix. And so the Roman commander, who was kind of... I guess in charge of the ship, uh, 
or in charge of the crew, giving the crew directions. Uh, he was persuaded more by the pilot of the ship than he was by Paul, so they tried in a few days. A few days later, a moderate south wind came up, and they thought, okay, here we go. Here's our chance. And so they headed out, and hoping to reach Phoenix, uh, which is further along the coastline there, of the southern part of Crete, and they hoped to spend the winter there, I assume. Or it says they hoped to spend the winter there. But before they could reach Phoenix, that dreaded northeaster came upon them. The locals called that kind of a storm a Iroquillo, or Uraquillo, says the New American Standard Bible. Some of the other translations just say northeaster. That's what the word means. It's a hybrid Latin Greek word. It means east-north, <laughs> literally. But it was a incredibly strong east-northeast wind and uh, hurricane-type force winds, and the ship was caught up in this wind, and the crew couldn't get it under control, and they had no choice but to give way to it and just to allow the wind to drive the ship along. And you can read the story there of the events in verse 15 and following. It was a situation that just got worse and worse as the days went on. They managed to get the ship's boat. The ship was towing a boat. That was the boat they would have used when they were in harbor to ferry back and forth from the ship to the shore. And they towed it. But they managed, it was giving them problems. They managed to get the ship's boat uh, on board the ship. And they managed to wrap some cables around the hull to keep the ship from breaking apart. And then they began to throw some of the cargo overboard to lighten up the load. And the next day, they threw out the ship's tackle. I'm not a, I tried to figure out what, what exactly is the ship's tackle, but I couldn't find any further information on that. And so they fought the storm night and day for days on end, as this chapter unfolds. You see that. They didn't even take time to stop and eat, really. And at that point, Paul kind of stepped to the fore and told them that they, they should have listened to him and stayed in Crete. But Paul said, take courage. None of us are going to die. The ship will be, is going to be totally destroyed, but all of our lives will be saved. And Paul went on to explain that an angel of God appeared to him during the night, telling him not to be afraid, and assured them that he would stand before Caesar. And not only that, but God would, along with Paul, save the lives of all who were on the boat with him. So Paul encouraged everyone to not lose courage because he believed God would cause things to turn out exactly like he said he would. But Paul went on to say, we're going to run aground on a certain island. So then we're at verse 27, and you can follow along there, 27 and following. On the 14th day, the sailors came to the conclusion that they were approaching some sort of land. And they said it took soundings. I take it that means they hung a rope over the edge with a weight on it. And they found out it was however many fathoms deep. And then later on it was shallower. And so they were, they were coming to some, some kind of land. And so they threw out four anchors to slow them down so the ship wouldn't smash too heavily into the shore. And got some interesting side note there that some sailors tried to escape under the pretense they're going to get in the boat and try to put out some anchors from the bow of the ship. That was a pretense, but they were in actuality trying to, trying to escape the ship. Uh, and these were the sailors that were doing that. But Paul was wise to, their, to what they were doing, and he stopped that. And you can read the account of that there. And so when day came then, Paul encouraged them all to eat. They had gone without food for 14 days. And again, reassured them that not one of them would die and then verse 37 tells us something interesting. Almost as an aside, there were 276 people aboard this ship. 
So after they ate, they lightened the ship as much as possible by throwing the wheat overboard, and that's what, from that we surmise that this ship was one of those cargo ships carrying wheat from Alexandria to Italy, as well as the passengers. So as you read there, you can see the ship hit a reef a little ways away from the island that they didn't realize was there, and the front of the ship stuck fast in that reef, and the rear of the ship started to be smashed up by the waves. And the soldiers planned to kill all the prisoners so that they wouldn't escape. But the Roman centurion stopped that. He was determined to carry out his charge. He had been charged to bring Paul to Rome. And the centurion was going to do that no matter what. So he stopped them from killing the prisoners. And uh, instead he gave the command that everyone who could swim, jump overboard, swim to land. Those of you who can't swim, grab a piece of plank or debris or whatever from the ship and make it to shore that way. And so then the chapter concludes by telling us that they all made it to the land safely. So that's the story of this chapter. That's where the, story, the chapter ends. Very interesting read. Uh, Luke knows how to tell a story. <laughs> it's very clear there. Uh, it's a story of a major crisis that came up in the lives of Paul and his companions and how they, especially Paul, handled this crisis. There are lessons here for us. So let's look at them. As Christians, we need to know how to handle a crisis in a godly manner. And we can gain this understanding by embracing the truths that come out of this chapter of Acts chapter 27. I just got two this morning, two examples, or two truths that I want to bring out. Number one, God's purposes cannot be stopped. God's purposes cannot be stopped. We've been seeing this all along as we've gone through the book of Acts. And we see it here again. Even in the dire crisis that they were facing in this voyage through the storm and this shipwreck, when their lives were in grave danger, Paul received assurance that they would make it through. Now, let's remember what God had told Paul previously. Several chapters back in Acts, you remember, God had directed Paul to go to Jerusalem and then to Rome. Paul obeyed that direction. Then he got arrested and beat up in Jerusalem and would have been killed if the Roman soldiers hadn't rescued him from the Jewish mob. But Jesus again then appeared to Paul that time assuring him that he would go to Rome and he would preach the gospel in Rome. That was God's purpose. That purpose had been communicated to Paul more than once. And now on this ship, in this storm, when anyone with a sound mind would have concluded that very likely everyone, including Paul, was going to be killed and lose their lives in the shipwreck, God again confirmed to Paul that he was going to make it to Rome. God had a purpose. God had a plan. And that was to get Paul to Rome so Paul could preach the gospel there. That was a key part of Jesus' strategy to get the gospel spread to the uttermost parts of the world. Getting Paul to Rome to preach the gospel was a key part in God's strategy. And that's what Jesus was doing here. God had a purpose to do that. And God's purposes cannot be stopped. Antagonistic mobs can't do it. Storms at sea can't do it. Shipwrecks can't do it. God is in control. He always has been and always will be. God, or Paul is going to make it alive to Rome. That was God's purpose, and that can't be stopped. This is a timeless truth, friends. 
By that I mean it's something that is always true. This is a truth that's true for all people of all time. A crisis will not alter or change or negate God's purposes. We will handle the crises that we face in our lives much better if we realize this truth. The crisis that we face, the crisis that you may be facing right now, is in no way going to change God's purposes for you or your family or your loved ones. It may reveal to you that those purposes may be carried out in a bit of a different way than you expected. <laughs> when, when, when Paul, when God directed Paul to go to Jerusalem and then to Rome and assured him that he would preach the gospel in Rome, I doubt at that point when Paul first heard that message from God, I doubt that he had any idea how God was going to get him to Rome. He likely had an idea that he would, when the time came, buy a ticket on a ship and head off to Rome. That's probably what Paul expected was going to happen. He likely had no idea at that point that he would go there as a prisoner at a time set by the Roman authorities that was totally out of his hands. And would include, he had no idea, it would include a horrendously dangerous and scary voyage that would end in shipwreck on a little island <coughs> in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. But he did know he was going to get to Rome. He knew that. Friends, let's remember that truth. Let's remember this principle. Life has its times of crisis. For all of us. We're all going to face it sooner or later. Many of us have. Maybe several times in our lives we've faced a crisis. Probably will again. When we're in the middle of a crisis, remember that nothing about this is changing or affecting God's purposes. For you or for anyone else. It might change your plans or your expectations of what your life will be in the future but it won't change God's purposes. God's purposes will happen regardless of the crisis. So at times of these crises in our lives, the purpose may be to help us get in tune with God's purposes. <laughs> you see, we are so prone to assume that my plans and my expectations and my desires are synonymous with God's purposes. We equate those in our mind. Likely they're not. But if we remember when we're in the middle of a crisis that nothing about this crisis can stop or alter God's purposes, we'll be able to handle the crisis that come into our lives much better. Secondly, a mature faith becomes evident in times of a crisis. A mature faith becomes evident in times of a crisis. What really stood out to me as I read this and studied this chapter is how during this time of danger, moving into a full-blown crisis on this ship, Paul kind of rose to the top and almost became the leader. He's the prisoner on the ship, but he almost became the leader as you read this chapter. 
in the sense of being the one to bring stability and calmness to the rest of the people on the ship and encouragement and motivation to keep on trying. We're told that there were 276 people on this ship. So this is no small little boat, little yacht. It's a big ship carrying a cargo of wheat with a big crew and also some passengers. Those large ancient sailing vessels required a big crew of sailors just to man the ship, adjusting the sails, steer the vessel, take care of everything needed to make a successful voyage. It took a big crew <laughs> to, to man one of those ships. And the crew would have been, in all likelihood, seasoned sailors. And we're not told that, but I, I, I guess I assume that they, they were sailors. They would have done this before. They knew, they knew their job. If this was a merchant ship involved in shipping grain from Alexandria to Italy, they likely made this voyage before. But in this storm, and as a crisis escalated, Paul seemed to rise to the top. Paul was no sailor. But in saying that, obviously he did have some experience on being on ships and on voyages. He had been on ships and voyages many times in his life. Uh, he did have some experience as well being involved in a shipwreck. Because Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 25 that he had been shipwrecked three times. <laughs> and he likely wrote that letter to the Corinthians before this voyage. So this would have been a fourth time that he was shipwrecked. So Paul had experience to draw on. But like I said, he was not a seasoned sailor like the crew of this ship like they were. So I find it remarkable how as this crisis unfolded Paul was the one that kind of rose to the top and became the person on this ship that everyone kind of looked up to. Not necessarily in the sense of Paul telling the crew how to do their job in the crisis but in the sense of being the stabilizing influence when everything was going wrong. The voice of calm, the voice of encouragement and assurance, the one who provided moral support and the ability to keep thinking straight in times of a crisis. He first took it upon himself to advise those in charge to spend the winter at Fair Havens on the island of Crete. But the crew went against that and pushed ahead anyway. Then in verse 21, Paul encouraged them to keep their courage up. He had received a message from God that all their lives would be spared. The ship would be destroyed, but they're all going to be saved. So keep up your courage. We're going to make it. Then in verse 29 through 32, it was Paul who detected that some of the sailors were going to try to escape the ship using the boat. And he warned the sailors and the centurion in charge that if they left the ship, they wouldn't be saved. Nobody would be. So the centurions had his soldiers cut the boat free from the ship and to take that avenue of escape away. And then in verse 33 to 36, it was Paul who encouraged them all to eat. They had been going hard, running on adrenaline for two weeks without a decent meal. Take time to eat, Paul told them. And then Paul set the example by breaking the bread and giving thanks and eating himself. And seeing that, they all followed his example and they ate as well. So as I said, that, that stood out to me as I studied this passage. And it spoke to me. We see here in Paul a man of mature faith and how that faith showed itself in the time of crisis. 
And as it unfolded, Paul, a prisoner aboard this ship, became the one that the rest looked to for strength and encouragement and stability. And a voice of reason. He was aided in this, of course, because he knew the purpose of God to get him to Rome. So because he had been told that, he had faith that God would see him through and get him to Rome. The storm and the shipwreck wasn't going to stop that. And Paul was mature enough to recognize that the purposes of God cannot be stopped, and that's where he placed his faith. Plus, God gave him the confirmation of that by sending an angel in the night to confirm it. So Paul may not have been a sailor, but he knew God's purposes to get him to Rome. He may not have known how to trim a sail in a storm, but he knew that 14 days without food wouldn't help anyone do anything. He may not have known how to man the wheel of a big ship, but he knew that if the big ship was having trouble handling the strong winds and the huge waves, that those sailors aren't going to make it any better trying to get away in a small boat. <laughs> they were acting illogically. A mature faith becomes evident in times of crisis. And that spoke to me as I studied this passage. If I am mature in my faith and secure in my belief that the purposes of God cannot be stopped, when a crisis hits, I will remain unshaken. I will be steadfast and unrattled and be the voice of reason and stability. I won't get all rattled and start doing unreasonable and illogical things. I won't start wringing my hands and moaning and groaning, what are we going to do? We're all going to die. No. Especially if this crisis is something you are facing with other people, which includes a bunch of non-Christians. If you are of mature faith, as it unfolds, people will start to notice that maturity and will respect it. Especially if a lot of other people are flying off the handle because of this crisis. And they will start looking up to you as the voice of reason and stability in this crisis. And look to you for strength and encouragement and example. I've heard non-Christians criticize us as Christians as being kind of unstable people. Throwing common sense to behind and just believing in weird things. And either way up or way down. That's the criticism I've heard. Unstable. I don't know what their experience with Christians are or is. But a Christian of mature faith will be the opposite of that. And when crisis hits, they will rise to the top as being the example of stability, of strength, of reason, of courage, and encouragement. If we are of mature faith, a crisis will reveal it. Like I said, that spoke to me. And I had to ask myself, if I were in a crisis, what would it say about my maturity level of my faith? Would I be that person like the Apostle Paul? Or would I get all rattled and act like the sailors trying to get away in that boat? <laughs> Not thinking straight. 
I hope I would evidence a mature faith. But like I said, that question haunts me a bit. What would I do? And I guess all of us as Christians need to ask ourselves that question. And if you as a Christian are in the middle of a crisis right now, be that person of stability, of strength, of reason, of encouragement. Know that God has a purpose, and his purposes cannot be stopped. And on the basis of your faith in that truth, be that person. That's what struck me as I studied this passage. So therefore we see from this passage some good truths that help us understand how to handle a crisis in a godly manner. They are, number one, God's purposes cannot be stopped. Recognize that truth, believe that truth, place your faith in that truth. That is a timeless truth that we all need to hang on to, especially in times of crisis. God is in control. He has a purpose that won't change. And the crisis can't stop it or change it. If we can fully believe that and place our faith on that truth, we will handle the crisis a lot better. And in a lot more godly way. And then secondly, a mature faith becomes evident in times of crisis. If you are a Christian and maturing in your faith, a time of crisis will reveal the strength of your faith. You will become that person that other people look for, look, to, look up to for strength and encouragement and reason. People will notice it and respect that. And perhaps be drawn to your faith. And open to hear about Jesus, the source of your faith. Let's all of us as Christians keep growing in our faith so that when a time of crisis comes, we can be that person. If you're in the middle of a crisis right now, I encourage you to anchor yourself deeply in God and his unchangeable purpose and the strength of that faith. Be the person of stability in your crisis. Not sure what God has for each of you here this morning from this, but probably something. <laughs> so we're going to take our time of silence. going to encourage all of us to just bow our heads and just open our hearts up. What is God saying to me personally here this morning? What's the message God has for me from this? And just listen to his voice. I'll give you a few moments. Amen. Music team, please.
Thank you for your singing. 